in our series on the doctrine of Christ. Uh, the subject tonight is uh, the past atoning work of Christ. Uh, thank you, Sam, for the uh, reminders of uh, what he's done for us and how much we need to value that, uh, that work that he's done on our behalf. And tonight our focus will be on that work that he did um, in the past. Um, and you'll see that the first uh, scripture reference that we will reference is in Revelation. I say, well, how are you going to start in the future if you're talking about the past? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure, but let's, let's, see, let's see how it goes, okay? Um, in, uh, Before Time Began is what uh, I've titled this first section. And um, as I... Uh, as I have spent time in it, it has become more and more meaningful to me. Uh, in Revelation 13, 8, we read uh, verse 7 is talking about the, the beast. And verse eight, it moves into verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is, worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, excuse me, in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Now, uh, those of you who begin your scripture memorization with the King James, uh, have a little different phrasing there. Uh, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world is what the King James says. And uh, the NASB agrees with the ESB here. And uh, the NIV is a little, a little different. A lamb slain from the creation of the world, uh, from the foundation of the world. And uh, I think this issue has to do with nuances in language. Uh, I'm not uh, a, a language uh, expert by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I read uh, people like Kenneth Wust and, and uh, the Amplified Bible and some of those uh, kind of tools to, to understand uh, what may be being said in the conversation here. The Amplified Bible, for example, says, Everyone whose name has not been recorded in the book of life of the lamb that was slain in sacrifice from the foundation of the world. And then Kenneth Wust, who is always very verbose, verbose says it this way, uh, And they shall worship him, all who dwell on the earth, everyone whose name does not stand written in the scroll of the life, the scroll belonging to the Lamb who has been slain, in the mind and purpose of God, since the time when the foundations of the universe were laid, and who is looked upon by God as the, as the slain Lamb at present." Long way of saying it, <laughs> but evidently the, the phrase that, uh, that the translators, you know, uh, which, which uh, phrase modifies which word, uh, it actually modifies both, both concepts, the, those written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life as well as the Lamb who was slain, all at the foundation of the world. And we, we really see that as we go into uh, further scripture. For example, uh, even though John the Baptist had said in John one twenty nine, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, Jesus' mission became clear only after he was glorified. His disciples didn't know that. You remember several illustrations of that. Um, and yet, uh, the scripture says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. I think uh, Peter states this truth in a little more detail as he writes about Christ's sacrifice in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Redeemed from the empty way of life. Remember that phrase for a moment, please. I, I address you also to um, Paul, who addresses the same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Redeemed from the empty way of life uh, by an act before time began, uh, that none of the rulers of this age understood. Interesting that not even Satan knew 
about the shed blood until then. Isn't that interesting? Now, I believe if you let God's Spirit confirm this truth to your heart, it'll have a powerful impact in the victory that you experience in Christ. Peter makes it clear, we are redeemed from the empty way of life by the blood of Christ, and that this was accomplished before the creation of the world. In other words, the fall of man didn't destroy God's purpose in creating man. God is omniscient, and nothing takes him unaware. He's not unprepared for any event. God doesn't go running after Satan trying to sort out the mess that Satan makes. That's how we pray sometimes, isn't it? Uh, But it doesn't happen that way. Rather, the sacrifice of Jesus has already taken care of it. My, uh, I get teased a lot because I have a lot of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible, but one of my favorite verses certainly is, is uh, Genesis 50:20, And uh, you'll, you'll remember that, uh, that uh, J- uh, Joseph's brothers uh, came to him uh, or were confronted by him, and they were very frightened. Um, their father had just died, if you remember the story, and um, Jacob was at that time the king's right-hand man. Uh, anything he said went. He could have had their heads in a moment, and they were very frightened, uh, thinking back to the actions that they had taken against him uh, many years before. And, uh, and uh, Joseph looks at them and says, he, he, he admits their evil. You intended this for evil. But then he says something very important. But God intended it for the saving of many lives. And there was Joseph in a position to save the nation of Israel and to preserve lives. And it was God's plan from the beginning. He has redeemed us from an empty way of life. We don't don't live an empty way of life because he's in charge. And there's nothing that Satan can bring against Christ's sacrifice that has already been made provision for. Our, re- our redemption is in the blood. His provision for us is in the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. And whatever it is that Satan throws at you, <laughs> God, God knew about it a long time ago, my friend. A long time ago. And he's already created the plan by which he can receive glory from that. And God has made certain, you can be sure, that the blood of Jesus has enough authority and enough power to take care of whatever it is that you face in your life. So what's the application? You know, um, as we go into the presence of God with our needs, with our concerns, with our list, we don't need to waste time trying to figure out what God's going to (laughs) do. Or how, how God's going to handle it. Or what, how God's going to respond in that situation. We can simply take comfort in the fact that Christ's sacrifice before all time is the answer that God will bring to bear in our life. And the blood is God's provision. In his wisdom, the lamb slain from the creation of the world is the sacrifice, is, is the way that he meets our needs. And Jehovah Jireh, Uh, The Lord, our provider, uh, has provided everything we need, redeemed from the empty way of life. I want you to, you know, in in my my mind is so small, uh, you know, and the concept of God being in another dimension, not bound by time, just just explodes what little bit of brain is there. (laughs) Uh, You know, how is it that he lives outside of time? How, how is it that he exists outside of the dimension that is, so, uh, that is so impactful in our life? And yet if we try to understand it, if we accept it by faith, I believe it opens the door to a greater confidence in God, a greater awareness of how he can work in our lives. You know, uh, you, you already have it. And you're going to see it worked out as you trust him. Before the atoning, before time, before there was such a thing as time, which means before you and before me, right? Before we were even thought of, the atoning work of Christ is already complete. And we can rejoice in that. Before time began, (laughs) God had it completed. 
and I just need to rest in that. In that. Now, yes? Maybe it's my small brain not accepting all or not understanding everything, but I think of the atoning work of Christ as when he's on the cross, he says, it is finished as a point in time as we understand it. Okay. I mean, I know that God understands all time and can see everything, but I think of the death at a specific time in our little timeline, not as occurring at, before the foundation of the world. Okay. I know he knew it would happen, but I mean, so it, it's a physical thing. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Other other comments? How do you how do you how would you define the phrase "the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world"? Are you talking about the first one in Revelation? And well, any I mean, of there's the there's a little ambiguity there. Like I said. What does before the foundation of the world, what phrase, what does that modify? What do I know? I've been sitting here for <laughs> five minutes. But you can see where you can move that phrase around. Sure. And it will depend on what it modifies. And, and part of what we're dealing with is, I think what I was just talking about, we're bound by time. We can't conceive of anything outside a timeline. God is outside that. That's, that's the only way that I can that I can try to understand that. He sees it done. Well, in fact, the, this is also true in another fact when he sees us as seated at the right hand of God. He sees me, according to the Ephesians, seated at the right hand of the Father. Not there yet. <laughs> Got a long way to go. <laughs> By his grace I will be. You know, I don't know how to... That, that's what, that's part of what I was trying to say when I'm saying this, this concept of, of God in a different dimension blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, Rana, I think you, you referenced the Ephesians reference. I was thinking of the Romans 8 concept, those whom uh, he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the end of his son, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All past tense. All past tense, but the glorification is in the future. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, you know, you've got two different ways of thinking through that. Is that God seeing beyond the time as his existence outside of time as we think of it? Or uh, in that reference in particular, many New Testament scholars would say that the future is so guaranteed that it is as if it is past. Okay. Um, so there's different occasions and ways that. And so you could also there. say that in Tom's in Tom's illustration, you could also say that God saw it as done, but it wasn't completed until the cross. Yeah, I mean this, and as you pointed already, this kind of speaks to ultimately the authority of God and His sovereignty, where there would never have been a world where this would not have happened because of the guarantee component. Um, because of who God is, uh, he had, before the foundations of the world, already had this Lamb's Book of Life and that automatically implies that there's this salvation component and the salvation component is going to already have happened in some sense um, with the atoning work of Christ. Um, so it is really cool and mind-boggling to think through. Um, sometimes, we, I don't want to get us too far off base here, but in terms of like predestination, we have to be careful to separate God's knowledge with his causative power, from his causative power. God can know something without causing it. Um, that's the only way that I can that I can understand predestination myself. But, uh, but uh, knowing something doesn't mean he causes it. In this case, he did choose and cause it. Is that, does that help or hurt? I don't know. Um, okay. Well, um, before time began <laughs> uh, is, is mind-boggling. I, I, 
I don't understand that. So what I can understand a little bit more is some of the things that are revealed in God's word, some of the events. So let's, let's talk about some of those that, uh, that foreshadow the atonement of Christ, okay? Well, one of the, one of the writers that I like, A.B. Simpson, says that you can see Christ on every page of the Bible. That, that's an interesting comment, and, and in a lot of places I can see it's true. A lot of places I, I struggle with that a little bit. But, but uh, you can see Christ on every page of the Bible. And, and this whole thing of, of um, looking for um, uh, ways that God is trying to tell us about Christ's atonement before it quote-unquote happens, if we're back in the, in the timeline, <laughs> um, is, uh, is easy for us looking back. When we look at some of these things, it'll, it'll, be, it'll seem pr- fairly obvious. But imagine going through that and, and, and trying to learn from it as you experience that. I think it would have been a lot harder uh, for some of those who preceded us to understand. Let's start with the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.21, uh, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, uh, you, you remember well the story. And... Um, uh, they had uh, they had sinned. Uh, they had made some attempts that were uh, ill-advised to cover themselves with leaves. Uh, that didn't work, right? God God saw through that, and He provided skins to close them. Now that's an obvious illustration for us looking back. I don't know that they saw it at the time looking forward, but it's an obvious illustration that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. After the writer of the Hebrews says, and God found their leaves inadequate. So skin was used and the need for a sacrifice was beginning to be revealed. Uh, An animal was killed to pay for the sin of mankind. And um, uh, in Hebrews 9 we read, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Of course Adam and Eve didn't have Hebrews to read. right? But but God was trying to teach a lesson, and the blood was covering their sins physically and spiritually. And so the first time that we witness shed blood in the Old Testament has to do with the payment of sin, has to do with covering sin in the Garden of Eden. Now a few chapters later, uh, let's look at another uh, biblical event that foreshadows the atonement, and that's Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in uh, Genesis 22. Uh, we remember the story where uh, Isaac was spared and uh, God provided a ram. Um, and the, uh, there, there are two themes here, really, that, that talk about the atonement. One is the father offering his only son, which we see uh, as, as parallel to, or somewhat parallel, earthly parallel anyway, to uh, God, the Father, offering his son Christ, and then also the substitutionary sacrifice with the ram being provided instead of uh, Isaac. Um, and so we have uh, Jehovah Jireh. Now, we get, we get the word Jehovah Jireh from this passage, uh, and we typically translate it uh, Jehovah, our provider, um, and literally, it's, it's, uh, the, the gyra is the Lord will see, as in the Lord will see to it. That's where, the, that's where the thought of being a provider comes from. The Lord will see, as in he will see to it. Now, <laughs> Adam Clark says, the Lord will see, his eye affects his heart, and his heart affects his hand. I like that. His eye affects his heart, and his heart affects his hand. In other words, God knows God cares, and God has the power to do something about it. And, and you know, there's a lot of people who, who know something. There's a lot of people who care, maybe. But if they don't have the power to do something about it, what, what good's the knowledge? But he knows, he cares, and he has the power. And so you find uh, the illustration uh, of the atonement of Christ in, the, uh, in this uh, story of the sacrifice uh, of Isaac. Uh, comments about this uh, particular incident? Um, ways that you think of that. Uh, did you see the atonement in that? Do you, do you see where it's being represented? Okay. Now how about the Passover? I'm sorry. Question. Do you think um, these are foreshadows to point to the atoning work of Christ so that we could see in a physical picture of what's happening, of what is to come, do you think this is for only our benefit looking back on these stories, or do you think it was for their benefit as well to be pointed to 
Good question. What do you think? What do we read about Abraham in Romans chapter 5 that we've heard about <laughs> several times recently? There was, there was some way in which Abraham understood something about that, didn't he? Because he believed God and it was credited him for righteousness. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what he saw in that, but he was, he was learning. He, he, was, he was getting it. And God, God accepted, um, I don't want to say what he gave, but God accepted how he responded, uh, which is interesting also to me. Okay. Um, another biblical event that is a common uh, story for us, um, and that is the Passover. In Exodus 12, um, I... Uh, I particularly want to focus on verses 2 and 13. If I could um, read that for you, please. Um, Exodus 2 says, uh, this is to be the... Is that, that's not the verse I wanted. I'm sorry. Where am I? Exodus 12, verse 2. I had it written down, but that's not the verse I wanted. Oh, it's verse 3. I'm sorry. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for, one for each household. And then in verse 13, we read um, the blood. Uh, of course, you remember they were, they were to sacrifice the lamb, paint the blood on the doorpost. And verse 13 says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so there was the prescription of uh, slaying an animal for each family to observe the Passover. And, and really the, the significance of the lamb is rooted in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, the lamb was sacrificed to protect the family. Um, and, and Jesus confirmed this Old Testament story in, in what? How did Jesus confirm this story? Do you remember? Yep, the Last Supper. That's right. When he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, uh, he changed the meaning of the Passover, didn't he? When he said, take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood shed for you. So he made application of this Old Testament story and the, and the routine, the, the, um, the um, uh, uh, regular observance that they... Uh, had with the, with the annual Passover, he applied that to himself and to his own atoning work. So we see another, uh, another, another incident. Good. Um, here's a fourth one. How about the Day of Atonement? Uh, Yom Kippur, we're in Leviticus 16 now, and um, there are several verses that I'd like to read there. So if you want to turn, uh, you might want to follow along. Leviticus 16. Um, Yom Kippur, which is the uh, Day of Atonement, is the most important day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, the only day that the holy priest, that the high priest, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, um, whether it was the tabernacle, as here in chapter 16, or later in the temple, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the only day that the um, uh, that the high priest uh, went in to that. Holy of Holies. And the chapter begins, chapter 16 begins with a focus on the mercy seat, the uh, kaporeth, which is uh, described in Exodus 25. And you remember it was a gold plate and it was a, uh, a seat, uh, a, a, it was placed on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was built into both sides of it? Do you remember? Angel. The cherubim? Yeah. Angels, what, we don't know exactly what they look like, but there's some basic description of them. And it was all to be made of one piece. This gold seat, which was the mercy seat with the cherubim on it, uh, sat on top of the ark. And, um, and so we see that, that uh, as the uh, uh, priest went in, uh, I'd like you to look at how he's dressed in verse 4. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic, with the linen undergarments next to his body, tie the linen sash around and put on the linen turban. This is not his normal, this is not his normal dress. Usually he's all is in his uh, 
uh, uh, fancy fancy uh, digs, but these are these are common. Uh, uh, gar not common garments. They were special garments, but they were made from common materials, and it was a, a very plain uh, 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 form of dress. And, um, and and he goes in to make atonement. In uh, verse uh, six, uh, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself in his house. Then he shall take the two goats. Do you remember the, the Day of Atonement and the two goats story, right? Take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. So we have two goats, but they're used in different ways and they constitute one offering. It's important to remember that. This is one offering, both presented before the Lord, but how they were treated was different depending on the lot as determined uh, this, this appeal to God. They, the, uh, one Jewish writer describes the process like this. The priest, placing one of the goats on his right hand and the other on his left hand, took his station by the altar and cast into an urn two pieces of gold exactly similar, inscribed, the one with the words, for the Lord, and the other for Azazel, the scapegoat. After having shaken them well together, he put both his hands into the box and took up a lot in each, that in his, that in his right hand he put on the head of the goat, which stood on his right, and that in his left hand he dropped on the other." So there was a there was a process that that was being used to to um, to choose one goat for to be sacrificed and the other goat to be released. Now some commentators think that uh, Azazel should be regarded as a personal being, uh, the opposite of Jehovah, that is an evil spirit. And in this view, the the, the Azazel goat was to uh, take back the sins which God was forgiving into the desert as a means of. Uh, as a proof of Satan's influence not being around the people anymore. Um, other commentators in a view that I prefer uh, look at the two goats as pointing to the Lord Jesus as dying for our sins and rising again for our justification, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. The two goats are brought. You'll notice uh, one represents a sacrifice for sin the other one has the, the sins of the people confessed over his head and then sent away into the wilderness. So the second animal is represented as bearing away or carrying off the sins of the people, the scapegoat. The two goats, it's only one sacrifice. Only one was slain. Trying to understand the reasons why, um, one possibility is uh, one animal could not point out both the human and the divine nature of Christ. The animal that was killed would refer to his human nature, but it wouldn't represent his divine nature, would it? Um, but the goat that, was, that, was, uh, that had the sins placed on his head and was, and was uh, uh, put, cast away into the wilderness uh, is a, is, could be a representation of the, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. Now, any, um, any heavenly truth trying to be conveyed in earthly words is going to run into, <laughs> run into a problem at some point. You, you can't convey truth. You can't convey with earthly words perfectly something that is a, that is a heavenly um, event. But, uh, but it is true that, that one sacrifice could not point out both the human and the divine nature of Christ. And perhaps that's why there were uh, two goats. Um, Adam Clark, again, I think Adam Clark says the divine and human natures in Christ were essential to the wonderful plan God made to satisfy the sin penalty. Yet only the human nature suffered, for the divine nature could not suffer. But its presence in the human nature, while agonizing unto death, stamped those agonies and the consequent death with infinite merit. And so we have the, the goat that was slain, foreshadowing his human nature and his death, and the goat that, was, that escaped into the wilderness, pointing out his resurrection and the removal of the sins from the people. Um, the released goat that's sent 
with a guide. If you, if you read the story, there's a guide that takes him into the wilderness to make sure that, that he gets there, I guess. Uh, but he's called the scapegoat, the goat that escaped death. And the Hebrew word uh, that we see here, Azazel, uh, could be a compound of two Hebrew words, uh, goat and to go away. Other linguists uh, connect it with an Arabic word that means to remove or to banish. But regardless of the origin of the word, the meaning's clear. The releasing of the goat symbolizes the sins of the people being carried away, never to be. And, and the fact that the goat's never seen again is an illustration of their sin is never to be held against them again. So think of that think of that word picture in your own mind if you're if you're if you're there and your sins have been confessed with the peoples on the head of this goat and and the goat goes away you know further and further and further and further until it's only a small speck and then it's gone never to be heard of again and that's one of the symbols that God uses to help you understand that he takes your sin away. There is full forgiveness. There is free forgiveness. There is total forgiveness in God. And your sin is removed. Uh, Though your sins be as scarlet, says Isaiah, they shall be, what? As white as snow. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. You know, if he had said north and south, we could measure to the North Pole and the South Pole, couldn't we? But he said east and west. How far can you measure east? How far can you measure west? An infinite, infinite amount. And what a wonderful truth it is that God has separated our sins from us in that way. Then when you get to verse 22, you'll notice that the high priest prepares for the burnt offering and he changes his clothes. You see that? I made allusion to that before. He takes off his, uh, his linen garments and, and uh, bathes himself and puts on his regular garments. The regular garments were the, were the, the, the high-dress ones. <laughs> they weren't quite regular, but uh, they, were, they were the fancy ones. And, um, and then he makes um, um, uh, uh, the sacrifice for the people. And I, I want to I point out here, too, thinking about the fact that the people couldn't go in there. In fact, only he could go in there once a year. Um, we, we think about the veil rent at the crucifixion. We think about how Christ uh, symbolized by that, that we now have access to God. Those Jews did not have access to God themselves. They, their mediator was the priest. Uh, but once the veil was broken, once the veil was rent at the crucifixion, uh, we have uh, the ability to go into the Holy of Holies. In fact, the thing, one of the things that I think about often, when Paul, when Paul describes that, that we are the, the, um, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, he uses the word naos, which is the Holy of Holies. You know, when, when God's spirit dwells in us, it's not the outer temple. It's not the, it's, it's, it's the naos. It's the holy of holies. And, and uh, when, when, you, when you think about the fact that God dwells in you and has made you, he, he comes into the naos, into the holy of holies. It's just, it's, it's one of those things that's mind-boggling again. It's one of those things that, that really makes us think about how we act and what we do and, and, and how we should live. Um, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's just a powerful, powerful statement. And uh, uh, Christ has gone into the secret place. And, uh, and, and the Bible says that our, our lives are hid with Christ in God. Uh, we are we are hidden with him. If you go back to the to the uh, to the first point that we made, and God already has the plan set out and the way to meet our needs. Our lives are hid with Christ and God. There is tremendous security in knowing that God has forgiven our sins and taken us uh, to Himself. And so these two goats uh, represent Christ's work. One one in its essence, in terms of the the sacrifice. The other uh, in its effect, uh, removing removing our sin from us. Um, other aspects or comments about the, uh, the Day of Atonement that, that uh, help you see um, this being a, a part of the, a, a picture of the uh, atonement uh, that Christ would, uh, would make for us. Um, 
Any, any comments, any ideas there that uh, would help us see that also? Well, we've discussed four events that foreshadow Christ's atonement at Calvary, and each one of them has had a direct blood sacrifice connection. Um, and that was integral to the atonement. Uh, in fact, the, in, chapter, in Leviticus chapter 16, where we were, the word blood is mentioned nine times. And if we read on into chapter 17, we'd find it mentioned 13 more times. <laughs> the blood was important. And, and, and the, the rules and the regulations were all very specific. And um, uh, verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 17 tells us why. Let me read that verse for you. Uh, Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And the Bible, uh, uh, if the Bible's teaching about the blood says anything about salvation, it's that there's no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. Um, I, I remember, uh, and I'm a little older than, than some of you, but do you remember Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist that, uh, <laughs> that was always making a lot of noise? Uh, I remember seeing her on TV and uh, saying about uh, these gory Christians, you know, always talking about the blood <laughs> and uh, making, making a lot of fun about that. Um, but Jesus said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins, shed for many for the remission of sins. And it's extremely important. Now what I'd like to do for the, the last section here is to look at some different illustrations that God has given us that foreshadow the atonement that don't specifically relate to blood. And maybe some of these you didn't think about as foreshadowing the atonement, but um, uh, maybe, maybe they do. Let, let's see. Let's, uh, let's talk first of all about Boaz. Uh, he was uh, Ruth's uh, kinsman redeemer, right? In the book of Ruth, uh, You'll notice the, that story. You'll remember that story. And uh, in Ruth uh, chapter 4 and verse 8, it reads like this. This is after uh, Ruth has been introduced to him and, and he's protected her. And uh, uh, now he decides to, um, uh, to he, that he wants to marry. But there's another, there's another kinsman that's closer. And so he has to, uh, that, that person has the, has the right to uh, redeem her first. And... Um, so the kinsman redeemer, which was the fellow that Boaz went to, said, buy it yourself. Uh, you bought the land then, and the woman went with the land. You know? <laughs> Wasn't exactly the way we would do it today, right? <laughs> um, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. In other words, he wasn't going to do it. And so Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathath and fame, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now the word there is gaal. And um, where else might we find that word? Um, if you remember the book of Job, chapter 19 and verse 25. I want to read you three verses there from Job 19. Job says, and this is, this is well into his trials, right? This is, this is where he's learning some lessons. <laughs> and he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And here we have 
Boaz, uh, looking for his Gaal, his Redeemer, the one who, who, who was going to purchase him, who needed to purchase him. And certainly Boaz is a picture of Christ, our kinsman Redeemer. Uh, pictures the word becoming flesh and purchasing the church. Uh, that's what Christ did, right? That's what Boaz did. That's what uh, uh, Job knew that his Redeemer would do. And so Christ took upon himself our flesh, of course, without our sin, that he might redeem us. He paid the price. He did it because he loved us. And like Boaz, he is the Lord of the harvest. He supplies our need. He redeems our inheritance. He gives us rest. He's our kinsman redeemer. And that was one of Boaz's roles for us to, to teach us, to show us uh, that, uh, that comparison and show us the atonement that was coming. There's another story that, that may be uh, not quite as familiar, and that is uh, from the book of Hosea. Uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you want to turn there, interesting little story. And um, it would be good for you to turn there if you don't mind, because there's, um, um, there's some, um, if I could say it respectfully, I think there's some reading between the lines that's necessary here <laughs> to understand <laughs> this story. Um, Hosea, uh, I'll start with uh, chapter one. Well, yeah, I'll start with chapter one and uh, verse two. Uh, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So I'm not going to, um, to, to get into uh, why the Lord would, would tell him this, but that's what the Lord told him, okay? And so he goes and, and he marries Gomer, verse 3. He married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, I want you to notice the three children that are born and the names of the three children, okay? That was at verse 3. Verse 4, the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Okay? So there's, there's the first kid. Uh, uh, verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Luruhama. For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should, forgive, that I should at all forgive them. Uh, and after she had weaned Lohama, verse 8, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now, um, the, the, um, the next chapter uh, uh, is prophecy and doesn't really relate to Hosea's family here, but some of the commentators think when you look at the names of the children, especially when you get to that last child, um, it was probably not Hosea's son. She had been unfaithful to him, and that's why he was named that. Uh, you are not my people. Um, and, and you can see then when you get to, ver when, when you get to chapter 3, the Lord said, the Lord said to me, uh, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And verse 2 gives us, again, I'm, I'm saying you have to read between the lines here a little bit. So I bought her. What does that mean? She was a slave, right? She had sold herself into slavery, or maybe somebody that she went with sold her into slavery. And so uh, Hosea has to go to the slave market and buy his wife back. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute. There we go back. Read that into chapter 1. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. So here we have uh, Gomer being unfaithful and, and running off and ended up being sold as a slave, and God instructed him to go and redeem her. Go and buy her back. And I want to say to you, in our unfaithfulness, as much as we do not deserve it, God pursues us to redeem us and to buy us back. I, one of the, one of the uh, 
and, and Jacob, you can probably tell me who it is. I can't remember who the author is. But uh, somebody's written a book called The Hound of Heaven, <laughs> one of the 16th or 17th century uh, uh, Christians that, that is interesting. But The Hound of Heaven, think about that. The, the God who loves us pursues us. He pursues us when we do not deserve it. We never deserve it, but he pursues us. And so Gomer illustrates to us, I'm sorry, Hosea illustrates to us that, uh, that, that God is interested in us and he is in the process of bringing us to himself, drawing us to himself, and he, he comes to redeem us uh, as, as Jesus did um, in his atonement. So perhaps a, a, a little-known illustration, but one that, that I think is a, is a, is a good, uh, a clear illustration of God's love for us. Comments about Hosea and Gomer? Being an Old Testament prophet was a rough job. <laughs> There's a lot of things that doesn't seem fun to be being a prophet in the Old Testament. <laughs> the cooking over manure. <laughs> That's what we're talking about in right now. <laughs> well, God preserved us, didn't he? <laughs> He's benefited us in ways that we... Uh, some ways we understand, in some ways we don't. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we have another illustration of, uh, of uh, the uh, atoning work of Christ, the, the past atoning work of Christ in Psalm 22. This is sometimes called the crucifixion psalm. Um, it is a... Um, uh, a very interesting, uh, interesting psalm, and and no doubt, as a, a number of these psalms do, there are multiple applications uh, to to the psalm. But one of them certainly um, seems to me one of the applications seems to be um, the the application to the uh, atoning work of Christ. Um, the Jews didn't know about crucifixion when this psalm was written. Uh, in David's time, and this uh, vivid description of um, of death on a cross uh, could only have been penned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There, the, 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 for somebody to think of that um, would would have been very unusual. Um, it's kind of two. There's two sections to the psalm. Uh, in the first 21 verses, you see Christ's uh, suffering and Christ's uh, crucifixion. And then in the latter half of the psalm, verses 22 to 31, you see, his, uh, you see praise, you see, uh, you see uh, resurrection. Uh, the first section, uh, I think pain would be a good word to describe the first section. Uh, pain and, and intense pain. But when you get to the second section, I think the key word is praise. Um, I, I don't know if you, let's look at that first section just a little bit. Why have you forsaken me? Uh, why are you so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out, but you do not answer. Um, uh, I am a worm and not a man scorned and despised. All who see me mock me and hurl insults. Um, uh, uh, trouble is near. Trouble is near. There's no one to help. Bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths against me. Poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. I mean, pain, pain. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. Uh, verse 16, you have pierced my feet. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, obviously, if this is, a, if this is an accurate translation, uh, it, it can refer to the crucifixion. There's some people who would, who would uh, take issue with the, with the word piercing there, the way that's translated, uh, and use a different word. But um, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. I mean, how clear is that um, uh, regarding the, the crucifixion? So anyway, the word pain is, there, is, is obvious there in a number of times. But then start at verse 21 and look at the praise. I will declare your names to my brother. In the congregation, I will praise you. Uh, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Um, Let's see, uh, from verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. Uh, the poor to eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And so there's a, there's a whole um, 
uh, concept of praise in, in the last uh, section of that. Um, so, uh, you know, with the pain that, uh, that Christ finds in the midst of his enemies and then uh, Christ in, in the midst of his church, if you will, or in the midst of the people of God. And so I believe that the psalm is a, is a prefiguring of, uh, of Christ's atonement, showing the, the, um, the crucifixion and, and the resurrection there. Comments about Psalm 22? Uh, things that I skipped or missed there that would be helpful. Okay. Um, and then our last uh, uh, illustration this evening is the uh, suffering servant illustration it, uh, from Isaiah 53. Um, really, the uh, story begins in chapter 52 at verse 13 and continues into 53. And um, um, I won't read the whole, the whole psalm, but uh, verse 4. Uh, let's let's pick that up because we're we're looking at the uh, is this a is this an illustration of the um, of the atonement of the um, is a prefiguring of the atonement. Surely he has borne, and uh, one translation uses the word taken up, um, the idea of taking on himself. He has borne our griefs, and the word griefs here is the word for infirmities, the word for sicknesses, and carried. Our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And the and the the key the key thing that those words tell us, I believe, is this is not just sympathy, but it's substitution. He took up our griefs, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. He just doesn't say, I care. He helps us. He cares in an active way. Uh, and, and I think, you know, this is kind of like the idea with the goats, the twin ideas of, of taking on himself. He took up our griefs and carried our sorrows, taking away. One, one translation says he takes away our sorrows. And that concept of, of bearing our sin and taking it away is, is I think, repeated again here in, uh, in Isaiah 53. And then in, in uh, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. I want to, I want to focus on that word chastisement for a minute. Uh, literally there, that's the correction that's inflicted by a parent for the child's good. The, the, the NIV says punishment, and that's, that's really not a good word there. But this is the correction that leads to peace. The correction that leads to reconciliation with the father. And, you know, when, when you go through a hard time and it brings you closer to God, you don't mind the hard time near so much, do you? <laughs> when you look back on it. You know what I'm saying? You've been through those times, haven't you? And you, you fight them while you're there. But if it draws you closer to God and you look back and see that, you say, yeah, that, was, that was good. That was for my benefit. That was chastisement. That wasn't punishment. That was chastisement. And he chastises those that he loves, right? Because he cares about us and he wants to draw us to himself. And then at verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, sin's penalty of us all. And uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not just a sin offering, but actually sin for us. He was sin for us, sin itself. The innocent was punished as if he was guilty, that the guilty might be rewarded, that you and I might uh, have the forgiveness. And, and you know, when you, when you think about that for a minute, when you let that sink in, it's, it, it, it just, it's overwhelming. The guilty rewarded, the innocent punished, that's the, the atonement, the work. And, and there's, there's just, there's so much here um, that uh, in this chapter. And, and I, I just, it, it so definitely points us to the atonement of Christ. Now, it's interesting to hear and to read what commentators say about Scripture. But I think it's critical 
to know what the Holy Spirit says about Scripture. That's, that's the commentator that we want, right? And so uh, let's close with what the Holy Spirit says about this Isaiah 53 passage, and that's in Acts chapter 8. Verses 30 to 35. The Holy Spirit speaking to us about this Isaiah 53 passage. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from this earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Here's the verse, isn't it? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What you're reading, Mr. Egyptian <laughs> is about Jesus. And I want to tell you the truth about Jesus. It's so amazing and so wonderful that, that um, God shows himself to us in so many different ways. There's a quote at the end of your, um, I, I didn't put it in my notes, but there's a quote here that I wanted to share with you. A Brevard Child's quote. Um, what occurred was not some unfortunate tragedy of human history, but actually formed the center of the divine plan for the redemption of his people and the world. God's purpose and God's will in the suffering of his servant, Jesus, was not some unfortunate tragedy of human history, but actually formed the center of the divine plan for the redemption of his people and indeed the world. And so the uh, suffering servant teaches us uh, about Jesus. Um, and the work that he did on our behalf. So whether we're talking outside of time or in the sequence of time, God reveals himself to us day after day, in, in method after method, in scripture after scripture, in truth after truth, to, uh, to remind us that uh, he has a plan uh, to... Um, to live in us in a way that will make our lives successful and bring glory to him. I, uh, I hope that, uh, that, that something that, uh, that you saw tonight would be a challenge and an encouragement to you. It has been to me over these last days as I've been uh, thinking about this and um, I, I have uh, benefited from it immensely. And uh, so I say thank you for the opportunity uh, to, uh, to share some of the things that uh, I learned with you. Just, uh, I have here, I, I don't know what you think about Isaiah 53 or if you're interested in, in uh, how the Jews respond to that. Um, I was talking with Jacob earlier about seeing the great Isaiah scroll it's just, it's just a, a magnificent thing. It's the only, the only scroll that we have of a complete book of the Bible. Um, and and uh, it has chapter 53 in it. Uh, but you may, you may have heard that the Jews don't, um, don't read Isaiah 53 when they read through the scripture. I have an article here uh, by a, a, a Messianic Jew that explains kind of how that has all happened. And if you're interested in that, you're welcome to take a copy of it. Um, but uh, the, the, the suffering servant, as this, um, as this chapter is called, is a clear, clear picture of Jesus Christ and his work for us. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you for what you've done. We can't, we can't describe it. We can't define it. It goes far beyond words. We can't understand so much of it we can't understand, Lord. And so much of it is, is just... Um, it's just beyond my pea brain to know why you would pursue someone who is an enemy of you. And yet you have and you do and you will. Not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those that we are praying for, the lives of those that we are witnessing to. 
Father, may men and women and young people come and know Jesus Christ because of what you do in and through our lives as our Redeemer, as our kinsman Redeemer, as the one who makes atonement on our behalf. Work in our hearts, Father, and challenge us and change us for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.